Please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. We'll read through to verse 15. First Corinthians chapter three, beginning with verse five. What then is Apollos and what is Paul servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one? I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. You know, I'm going to stop there because I'm not going to preach farther than that. So what's the sense of reading the rest? I could read the whole Bible. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Now, again, what's the nature of the conflict arising from the Corinthians' uh, jealousy and envy? Well, the nature of the conflict is that they're lining up behind famous pastors who have books on the New York Times bestseller list and have 5,000 people in church run 30,000 on Sunday morning. Um, are interviewed by Larry King, uh, muckety-mucks. And so the people, as a way of themselves having pride, the people say, you know, I'm of Apollos and I'm of, you know, of Jesus and I'm of Paul. And, and they have different uh, people. Cephas, uh, 1 Corinthians 1.12, now I mean this, each of you is saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I have Cephas and I have Christ. Now he narrows it down, and as placeholders for everybody they're using to fight against each other and show they're better than each other, he just narrows it down to himself and Apollos. Paul and Apollos are the only two words that he uses. And he says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? And he answers his own question. He says, servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Now, at the very beginning, let me point out that what this means on the face of it is that Apollos and Paul are nothing. And if you go on to the next verse, um, you'll see that it says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God. So he's pointing to God and away from himself and away from Apollos. And then in verse 7, he makes explicit where he's headed, where it says, so then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. In other words, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Nothing. Nothing. They're nothing. They're not anything, which is to be nothing. All right? That's where we're headed. But stop and look at how he made the case. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? And I skipped to verse 10. So then neither the one who plans nor the one who waters is anything. They're nothing. But God is everything. 
But then look at how he makes the case. What then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. So you're going to end up with him being nothing, but here you are really seeing that preachers are really unbelievably important because it's through preachers that you believe. Now, notice he's not talking about the word of God here. He's not talking about um, the four spiritual laws. He's not talking about people next door sharing the gospel with you. He's talking about an office. He's talking about particular jobs that are done in the church by men set apart by God. In this case, apostles. And by extension, pastors, preachers. And what he says is, they're nothing because the people are lining up behind them and taking pride in who their favorite preacher is, right? And then he says, they're really something. Because through them you believed. So let me ask, how precious is it to you that you have believed in Jesus Christ? It's precious. It's priceless. And so then, how important are preachers? I mean, really. I'm pretty important. David, don't you think I am? No, yeah, yeah, you. I'm important, right? Yeah, yeah. Let the clerk record. David Weir has admitted I'm important. <laughs> okay, so what am, I, what am I trying to get at with this? Well, what I'm trying to get at is that the Apostle Paul, like any good teacher, builds you up and then knocks you down. Builds you up and knocks you down. And part of what goes on in a text of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit is making us malleable. About the time that we take pride, he says we're nothing. And about the time we say preachers ain't nothing, he says, through them you believe. And so it is true that we're nothing. And it's also true that we're something. Isn't this interesting? You've got both things right here. So what is Paul? What is Apollos? And then in the beginning of verse 7, they're not anything. And then the second half of verse 5, through them you believed. But right about then, so right about then, you're thinking, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. And then, did you notice what he does at that point? Through whom you believed. And at that point, we forget about Paul and Apollos, and we think, yeah, I believed. I received Jesus. Don't worry. Eventually, this will stop. And as soon as you think, yeah, I believed, what does he do? (laughs) He says even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. Do you get my point? About the time you think that it's really wonderful that you had the faith, the godly grandmother, the good church background, 
the faithful parachurch worker the humility to believe, he says, God gave that opportunity to you. And if God had not given you the opportunity to believe, you would not have believed. Do you understand that? Is it clear to you? And so one of the conclusions from just the first verse of our text is Paul and Apollos ain't nothing. Paul and Apollos are those that God used to give you an opportunity to believe. If God had not given you the opportunity, you would never have believed. As a matter of fact, ask yourself this question. If God were to desire to have, let's say, for instance, now we know how human beings are formed, right? We know that a man and a woman unite, and from that comes pregnancy, We know that the gestation is nine months, and we know that by God's grace, sooner or later, a child is born. Am I right about this? All right. Is everybody with me? Or have we, have we, (laughs) have we lost you? (laughs) Okay. So we know how a human being is made, right? And consequently, we know how Adam was made, right? Adam, like all men, came from gorillas, chimpanzees. And if you don't know that, go off to college and they'll teach it to you. And so, since we've seen babies made, we know how Adam was made. Adam had a belly button. If you didn't know that, I'm telling you. Adam did not spring out from nothing the trees had rings, right? The, the, the Grand Canyon has been carved. Are you with me? And so what God has always done is God has always chosen to have things come from where it appears that they had their origin. And so what you see today is what has always been happening throughout history. As babies are made today, so Adam was made. He was a little baby. He was in his mother's womb. There were a whole bunch of Adams. Now, I'm only quoting a a man at, at Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City, I was reading last night, who was explaining how... Um, Adam was not an individual, but rather was a, uh, a group of people. And it's because I think probably he had once seen a, a woman pregnant who gave birth. And so he knew that that's how God always works, right? I mean, really. Now, listen, I'm being facetious. If you don't know me well, I am being facetious, which is a word, for those of you that don't know that word, it means that I'm teasing you as a way of making a point. So bear with me. We all know that God is limited by the laws of nature. He he isn't able to step out of them. God has boundaries that he has set up. And those boundaries mean that he always does things the way we see them happening. And even though we can't look back to Genesis, we know that he lived within the laws of nature in Genesis. And so if we have fossils that indicate that gorillas talked, you know, fossils indicate that people talk, you know, whatever it is, or gorillas, chimpanzees, you know, I don't know. But if we have fossils and carbon dating, and if we have all these things that show us how God worked, 
then that is always how God worked. Because God doesn't lie. If I have a belly button, Adam had a belly button. And that meant Adam had a mother and a father. That means that that man, Adam, came from somewhere. Naturally, according to the laws of nature. Now, think about this. It is very difficult for us to go to the university, to go to college, to go to biology class, and to have our professors teach us the origin of man that we did, in fact, make ourselves, because that's, after all, what happens when a man and a woman are intimate. They make a a child. It's very difficult for us to have somebody teach this to us and then all of a sudden go off into la-la land in Genesis 2. where the Bible says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, ex nihilo, out of nothing. And so what we do is we like to focus on the process of God's work. Because we're not comfortable with God being larger than we are. We'd rather have a God that we make with our own hands. And so one of the ways we make him with our own hands is we study very carefully the process of a child being born. And we learn that The child is in the womb for nine months. We learn what goes on in the womb. We learn that in the first five days, the child doesn't have personhood, and so it's okay for the Food and Drug Administration to approve morning-after pills for the first five days because we've studied. and And so we take control of the world. We take control of our lives. We take control of the church. We can take control of the pulpit. And we're naturalistic. We're... We're um, practical, pragmatic atheists. We believe in God, where he's like an eight-syllable word in, 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 in St. Saint, Saint Paul's in London. And he has nothing to do with my life. And where everything he does has to comport itself according to the laws that I have studied and know. Right? And so I know the laws of nature. I know the principles of evolution. I know the laws of gestation. I know how a human being is made. I know physiology. And so what we do is those of us who have a brain that's slightly larger than other people know that we should get a Ph.D. Because what's the point of having a larger brain? You wouldn't want to waste that being a mother. And so we get a Ph.D., And we give ourselves to studying the laws of nature, the laws that we can see, that we can touch, the laws that we can hear, the laws that we can read. And pretty soon God is impotent. He will not create out of nothing, but rather there's a big bang, and then sooner or later the amoebas climb up on the beach and become whatever they were, I don't know what they were. And then those things evolve until they start walking upright, and then they start speaking, and then today we have Tim Bailey. And that's like a horrible thought. I mean, is that really the proof of evolution? It doesn't look like he's like, you know, what do they they say, the survival of the fittest? 
Okay, now, take everything you've ever learned and throw it out and start with God. And start with God being bigger than you are. Okay? Start with God being God. I am who I am. All right? Like your father, but a thousand, million, billion times more authority than your father. And then he can do anything he doggone well pleases. And he has a habit of doing that. And if you don't believe me, look at Ananias and Sapphira. They meant well. They were giving money to the church, for heaven's sakes. And then go to Nadab and Abihu. And then go to the Canaanites. That God. That God. The God who says he hates divorce. That God. The God who says, be not deceived. I will not be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. The man who sows to his sinful nature, from his sinful nature will reap destruction. The God who says, don't fear those who can kill your body. Fear the one who can throw your body and your soul into hell. That God. All right? And now ask yourself this question about that God. Can that God make a man out of nothing? Can that God form a man out of nothing without a belly button and have all his descendants have belly buttons? Can that God make a man out of nothing and form a first man with a belly button? Is it okay? Can he like have a belly button on Adam? Is that okay or is that like upset you? How about the trees that he formed? Can they have rings? Would that be okay with you, or would you like them not to have rings? Be just undifferentiated mass of wood until the next tree grows, and then you're you're okay with it having rings. And what about his son? Can his son be raised from the dead, or does that stretch you a little bit? And can he be born of a virgin? You okay with that? I mean, you guys, we are pathetic. We are completely pathetic. Most people who say the word God know nothing about what they speak about. No, they're absolutely ignorant because their God is an image. He can't talk, he can't hear, he can't touch, and he certainly doesn't get angry. And he has to have a whole bunch of atoms because science teaches us what God did. That's what this dude said. It's exactly what he said. It's unbelievable what he said. The Bible is about cosmic things, but we go to science to learn about how cosmic things actually happened. Now, listen, I love science. I love learning everything I can about all kinds of stuff. But the idea that the one who made the universe spoke it out of nothing is bounded and and, and compartmentalized and hemmed in and fenced and, and, and pressed down and has to live within what PhDs tell me he has to live within. 
like absolutely wacko. And so listen, God is big. God can do anything he wants to. He speaks and it comes into existence. And if you're a Christian, everyone here who's a Christian should be saying at this point, yes, that's right, right? We're all there, right? God speaks and it comes into existence. Furthermore, we know from Scripture right here that it says that it is through pastors that you believe, right? And we know that it says if God allows it, right? Everybody's with me. All right, now, let's say that God were to decide that he was going to dispense with pastors for you to believe. He was going to speak your faith into existence ex nihilo, out of nothing. All right? Can God do that? Can God make you a Christian by just zapping you? Right? Can he do that? Yes, he can. We're all, we're all there, right? So here's the question. Why doesn't he? Why doesn't God do that? Think of all the fights over who's a better pastor and who's a better preacher. What a waste of time and effort. If God just zapped us and we became Christians, then we could dispense about this stuff of through whom you believe. And we wouldn't have the Corinthians fighting over who's better, Paul or Apollos. And we wouldn't have fights today over who's better. He just zap us. And you know another thing. Um, I think that there's actually a better way of marking Christians than baptism using water. Because think of all the battles across church history over that water. I don't understand why God doesn't just... Zap them. You know, give every Christian, you know, like a birthmark in the front of the forehead. You know, or every one of them can't grow hair after they become a Christian. You know, or they lose their right arm. And he does it. No man does it. We don't need a pastor to do it. We don't need the elders to approve it. We just sort of automatically get a mark And those that don't have the mark aren't Christians, and those with the mark are Christians, and no human being has ever been involved in the process. Okay? And you know, while we're at it, that thing about the Lord's Supper. Think of all the battles over the Lord's Supper. You know, is he he it, or is he under and above it, or around and through it, or spiritually it, or it's just a memorial. I mean, what a waste of time and effort to fight over the Lord's Supper, you know? I mean, really, have you thought about this? What's with the Lord's Supper? What a wasteful expenditure of energy. Why doesn't God just, like, strengthen our faith? Zap! Why would he? And, And what's with Tim? I mean, really, do we really need anybody standing behind the table? It's Jesus' meal. Can't we see him here? Can't he just clomp the food right in us? You know? In fact, why does it have to be food anyhow? Can't he strengthen our faith without eating and drinking? I mean, it's so pedestrian. It's so organic. It's almost hippie-ish. 
And that's embarrassing. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Carol, right now, Carol Canfield is praying. Oh, she's not here, but she's praying. Oh, yeah, there she is. She's praying. Oh, Lord, bring him home. (laughs) He's off on a tangent. Bring him home. (laughs) David's holding up ten fingers. Ten minutes left. All right, all right, all right. The sirens are going off. All right. Now, listen. The Lord himself instituted baptism baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Lord himself instituted the Lord's Supper. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show my death until I return. Okay? The Lord himself instituted preachers, pastors. All right? God is pleased to use means. And it is always our habit to do one of two things with means. Either to make them much, much bigger than they ought to be. What's Paul? What's Apollos? Ain't nothing. All right? Because what? They were making the means anything but servants of the church. Anything but ministers of the gospel. They were displacing the glory of God with the glory of man. And so in that circumstance, what does the Holy Spirit do to us? He cuts us back down to size, right? And then about the time we get cut down to size, what do we do in our perversity? What we always do is then we say, but a preacher ain't nothing. And then God says, He is the minister of the gospel through whom you believed. And they're both true. The sacrament ain't nothing. It is the grace of the Holy Spirit, which God ordains and uses as he pleases. Not every Jew is a Jew. Not every circumcised man is circumcised in the heart. Not every man marked by baptism is a member of the covenant community. Right? And then he says, baptism now saves you. (laughs) You go, wait, 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 wait. No, we were over here. I say, yeah, and now you're over here. And it's God's prerogative to jack you around as he sees your heart needs it. And that's what he's doing about preachers right here. He's lifting them up. He's tearing them down. He's lifting them up. He's tearing them down. Notice in the text, keep going. It says, so neither the one who plants, no, back up, please. So neither the one, uh, yeah. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one. Here's the theme again. The man that waters, the man that plants, the man that waters, they're one. How can you say they're one? They're two. Nope, nope, they're one. Why? Because both of them only have incidental roles in the work of God, in making you a part of his building, which is the church. So they're one. And there's no discrimination, there's no distinction, there's no separation, there's no delineation in one. 
even though in our sinful hearts we try to make it two in our marriages all the time. (laughs) But God has said we're one flesh, right? (laughs) Remind yourself of that. All right. Okay. Those of you that are married, all right, you're one. All right. Um, But then notice what happens here. He says, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are what? One. But each. (laughs) But each. Wait, I just got disciplined to be one and now you're making me two. But each will receive our. His own reward according to his own labor. Isn't that amazing? God's a good father. He's constantly dealing with us precisely where our hearts are. If we want to lift our preacher up and say that he's the cat's meow and he has books on the New York Times bestseller list and everybody reads his blog and, you know, he's a muckety-muck, we say, if he's gracious to me, he says he ain't nothing. And if he's so gracious he decides to discipline me, I die of a heart attack tomorrow. And then what happens? What happens then? It don't matter. Because immediately in my place is just one more flunky. One more hoe, one more watering can, one more planter. And he better build on the same foundation I've been building on. Okay? Because one day everything will be clear. One day we will independently and alone stand before God and give an account for how we built. And then all the church growth will be seen for whether it's growth or not. All the numbers will be seen for whether they're numbers or not. All the books that have been written, all the royalties that have been paid, all the interviews that have been done, all the pictures taken, everything will be clear. And we will be judged. And it's called the day, that day of judgment. It's called the day. You know why? Because in the day, the light shines. At night, things can get hidden. And at night, even an ugly woman looks pretty. But when the day comes, everything's clear. And then it will be clear whether we're serviceable or not, whether we're useful or not. You know what the highest compliment that can be given a pastor is? If somebody yawns, they will say, he's useful. He's useful. He's useful. He's helpful. That's all you should ever say about a pastor. He's helpful. And you know what the pastors and elders look for among men that are considering going into the ministry? One thing. And that is, 
that he's useful, he's helpful. We really don't get quite excited about any of you. And nobody got excited about us. And really, excitement is vastly overrated when it comes to the things of God. What kind of husband do you want? You want a husband who's useful. You really don't want stars in your eyes because it'll cloud your judgment. What kind of a husband is your father looking for you right now? He's looking for a man who's useful and who likes red hair. People, listen, God could snap his fingers. God could speak and bring the world into existence. He could craft Eve from the rib of Adam. He could instantaneously make you a spiritual giant across all history. And he could do it without any man ever having a part in it, if that's what he chose to do. But God knows your pride, and he knows you would like to be able to claim to be a descendant straight from God. And that you don't want to have to be ministered to by a man that's your inferior in everything, including his girth. And so what does he do? He humbles you by having you have to have me weed you and water you and plant you. And you go, yikes, I think I'll find another church. I say, okay, do it. Just as long as your preacher's useful. And you say, well, how do I know if he's useful? And I say, well, generally a useful pastor will humiliate you. And if you're not humiliated by a pastor, instead, if you find yourself bragging about him in public, he's probably not useful. Because <laughs> generally, you don't brag about your father after he's given you a spanking. You just love him. Right? Right? Remember what you said about your grandpa? Huh? And that's our scripture for the week. Would you like me to end it with a shaggy dog story? How about a poem? How about an erudite quotation showing my great sophistication? I'm a poet and don't know it. <laughs> my son laughed at me. <laughs> now, is Dave Carell useful? Oh, oh, oh. oh, man, is he useful. Is Stephen Baker <laughs> useful? <laughs> How about Dave Canfield? Is DC useful? Yep, 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 yep. We're not nothing. Ain't, ain't nothing. We ain't nothing. One last thing. You're God's garden, his field, right? Is that right? You're God's field, right? 
And if you think about how a garden grows, it is a mystery, isn't it? It's amazing. And when you go out and you pick your summer squash, we're having a riot of summer squash. Not too much success in most other things this summer, but just summer squash is just, it's all over the place, right? And cucumbers, they're doing well. And so you go out and you pick your yellow summer squash and you're proudly carrying it back to the house. What do you do? Do you look at it and you say, look at what I and my great and my wife and, and Taylor, look at what we produced. We are the creators of this summer squash. Now, you realize that a newborn baby and a, and a yellow summer squash are the work of God. And they're beautiful. Nobody has ever bragged about their summer squash. You know, I mean, you might brag about it, but you don't brag about it. You know that all fruit is what? All fruit is God. Every bit of fruit is God, right? If you are God's field, if you're his plant, if you're his garden, then you will understand what it says in John 15, where it says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abideth in me, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And then do you remember what he says next? He says that the branch that bears fruit, he does what? He prunes. At the very beginning of the garden, what does it need? It needs planting and it needs watering. What happens to a seedling that has grown up and then he meets the full heat of day without water? It's very vulnerable, isn't it? And if it doesn't get water, it dies. How long can a baby go without his mother's milk? Not long at all. And so Paul is talking about the church at a time when she has just come into the light of day. She's a newborn baby. She is a little seedling. He says, I planted, Apollos watered. Do you know what the church needs today? The church today, everybody's focused on planting and watering. You know what the church in America needs today? For, for just six months, let's have a moratorium on planting and watering. And let's everybody get out the pruning chairs. Because that's what the church needs today. Church in America thinks that the only two gifts God's given the church is planting and watering. And so we got Billy Graham and we have affirming, uplifting pastors who water. And watering is so helpful, you know, and inoffensive. It doesn't divide anything. You ever seen a water divide? Well, I guess it could. You could use a a high speed, you know, and you could divide, you know, but generally water is quite uniting, you know. And so in uh, in my car, in the armrest, in my car is a pruning shears. I keep it there at all times. I am deeply attached. 
to those pruning shears. I carry them everywhere I go. If I drive to the East Coast, my pruning shears are in my armrest. Why? I've never thought about it until this morning, but it's because that's my life's work. I prune. That's what I do. And so I have this, like, deep attachment to pruning shears. I actually know which ones are best, and I actually have the best pruning shears in my armrest. I also carry the little leather holster they go in. Because that's what the church in America needs today. That's what you need. You need to be pruned. So don't go off half-cocked about one plants and the other waters, and why can't our pastors plant in water? That's what everybody here is constantly berating us for, right? Why don't you guys do a little planting? Do you have to be pruning? We say, well, you know, when you stop needing pruning, we'll, we'll have time to plant. <laughs> Think of Spurgeon saying, well, you have to always preach against fornication. He says, well, when you stop doing it, I'll stop preaching against it. <laughs> and so, listen, listen. Love your pastors if God has given them the calling of pruning. Love us. Love us. Because like the Holy Spirit said, by telling you the truth, have I become your enemy? You should make our work of pruning a joy. You should affirm us and encourage us when we prune you. Because then you'll be more fruitful, and that's what you all want to be, right? All right, all right, I'll stop. Let's pray.